So, hello and welcome uh, to the Shades of Green podcast. I'm uh, your host, uh, Juanita Garcia. And my name is Bryant Williams. I'm the uh, Garfunkel to her Simon, and you know, we're living in the bridge over troubled waters right now. <laughs> 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 so, so, uh, Juanita's going to get tired of uh, seeing me pretty soon. We've recorded several episodes in um, over the course of the last few days, and I think she's been pulling her hair out dealing with me and having to edit some of, the, some of my mistakes. So I greatly appreciate your own. It's not edited. It's completely organic, all of these recordings. (laughs) We're just going to leave it all in. (laughs) We're um, we're recording in the uh, lovely 1871 podcast studios. Thank you very much to uh, Juanita Garcia for um, setting that up and the um, Uh, Parker Gale Capital for uh, sponsoring this podcast. Amazing podcast studio here at 1871. The sponsorship, you know, sponsorship deals for us. I'm willing to, as as you can see from all the previous episodes, I'm willing to shield for anything <laughs> at this point. So, uh, with all you're, that, you're, you're like the Mike Ditka of uh, <laughs> my mental field. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I have so many feelings about that. So with, with, uh, with no further ado, I want to introduce our um, guest, the lovely and talented Judy Lee. Oh, hi. <laughs> hi, Judy. Hi, Judy. Thanks for um, joining us this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me onto this podcast. I have heard a lot about it um, from Bryant and others at EOC. So it's super, it's super awesome to be here. Well, good, good. We're really excited to have you. So, yeah. So, uh, well, uh, how how about we ask you first? Uh, how would you define an environmentalist, and do you consider yourself an environmentalist? Oh, what a question! <laughs> um, so, I define envir- I choose to define an environmentalist very broadly because mm-hmm. I would like more people to identify as environmentalists. So I, I, I define environmentalists as someone who, it, who cares about a healthy environment. And so mm-hmm. um, you don't have to actively be doing anything, but as long as you, you care, so you have that shred in you <laughs> that knows when, um, you know, dirty water that's polluted or polluted air is going to be bad for you and everybody else and every other living thing. Um, And, you know, a whole slew of other environmental issues. If you just care, I think that makes you an environmentalist because the first step is caring and then you can, and then you can take action. So I do consider myself an environmentalist and I'd like to consider more people environmentalists uh, based on that definition. Yeah, I love that. It takes it back to the uh, the Dr. Seuss definition, the Lorax. Yeah. Like as long as somebody cares a lot, something along those lines, you know, the, I think that was like the very first environmental book, like even before Rachel Carson's um, Silent Spring, mm-hmm. you know, but it I ended think so. with, um, you know, hey, as long as somebody cares a lot, you know, I don't remember the exact line, but you know, Go read it. You know, if you haven't already, please get you know get a copy of the Lorax and have them read it. They'll you know they'll love it. They'll treasure it, and it'll impact their lives. I promise it will. So um, yeah. So you're you're not a native of Chicagoan, correct? No. So um, we're recording this in the end of January. So I've been in Chicago, who um, for about four, 15 months, fourteen months. Um, and so a little over a year, um, it's my second winter and I actually grew up and lived most of my life in California, um, before coming, well, before going to China and then coming here. 
So fortunately, well, you know, I, I'm not going to use the um, the term that shall not be used anymore. It's been deleted from all of the federal pages. But, you know, like fortunately, because of whatever it is that's <laughs> altering the weather and climate patterns, <laughs> it's been a much more temperate winter. So it's probably been a much easier adjustment than um, you know than you were expecting. I would imagine. Okay, can I just say, yes. Chicagoans <laughs> complain so hard about the winter, and I'm just like, oh my god, guys, it's not that bad. But then I realize yeah. I have had very lucky yeah. um, timing in yeah. having two pretty mild winters these past yeah. winters and very variable kind of really confusing yeah yeah i mean like <laughs> two weeks ago we uh, i think it was two weeks ago as we record this we got up to about 60 degrees which is just insane in the middle of a january in the middle of january but you know Nuts. so you were in china so okay hold on a second like all yeah. right, so you went to school in uh california as well you grew up in california with school in california do, you know does do you think that influenced your Attitude towards the environment? Oh, totally. So I think my story about the environment is a, I don't know what the typical American story is for like being an environmentalist. Um, I think there's so many ways that one can go Mm -hmm. about and experience the environment and then care for it. So Mm -hmm. for me, that started from when at a very young age, I was, I grew up in San Diego. So coastal, beautiful (laughs) place. Um, So I I fell in love with the ocean from a very young age. I thought it was amazing. So cool. I thought I was going to be like an oceanographer, ocean (laughs) explorer of like deep depths and like crazy cool new yeah, crazy cool new uh, animals and fish and, oh, geez, I, I still have a love for the ocean. Um, but that definitely started um, when I was really young, like under 10 years old. Um, and we also had, we're at really close proximity to national parks um, mm-hmm. and state parks. And so um, protected public lands was a huge part of my childhood like every vacation we mm-hmm. had we always went to like some national park or some state park yeah, yeah. um if, probably not for the whole thing <laughs> but like at least for several days um yeah. so i feel really lucky having grown up on the west coast there are there is the high density of really interesting natural features and parks to see and so my my parents were especially my dad was super into these national parks. Um, we had national park passes. And so it's much to um, my, like due to my parents that we got that opportunity to be exposed to beautiful natural landscapes at a young age. And then after that, I went to school um, in Berkeley at UC mm-hmm. Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And so stayed in California, went to a different half of it that was also extremely beautiful and very close to other (laughs) national parks. I was like, oh, my God, I was camping and going on hikes all the time and met a lot of other people who like to do the same things. And so it kind of just reinforced a lot of the um, that original love for nature that I had already developed. Do you think your parents and were your parents... uh uh, environmentalists as well, or do, did they have? I mean, did they recycle? Did they have any of these environmental beliefs, or did they just, just they were outdoorsy people? 
I would say neither, actually. Okay. So my parents are not environmentalists. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Based on my definition, they are. They're not mm -hmm. the type that like um, would dedicate their careers mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. environmental work, mm -hmm. but they do care about the environment to a certain extent. Um, me being someone who's super gung-ho about it, I wish they would care a little bit more, yeah. Yeah. but they do They do care enough. They appreciate um, nature, and they can recognize when, like, things are bad. Okay. Um, and so they, they went just because I think something about, you know, American park advertising. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of discussion and dialogue about how um, American national park system and like public lands are not particularly advertised, have not been particularly advertised to minorities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it seemed to be a very white American thing to go. But yeah. I think... I think the NPS so white. This is the start of the hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> but they've been doing a little, you know, they've been working on it over the years. And I yeah. think my being an, a Chinese American growing mm -hmm. up, I think Chinese Americans they they have a different. It's almost because we're so underrepresented in a lot of ways, yeah. like even in media and yeah. everything. It's like. Even though the the advertisements might have that back then only had mm -hmm. non Asian non minor like mm -hmm. just white people like mm -hmm. doing cool things camping in national parks, right. it it seemed like the mindset was like oh whatever we're here now we're gonna go too so <laughs> yeah. it was a lot at least from that like immigrant perspective for mm -hmm. my parents who are recent immigrants they're like well every of course, we're not represented here. Right, right Like, right. if this is the thing to do as Americans, like, we're well, gonna maybe it. we're going to give it a try. Yeah. And they seem to be having fun. So, like, why can't we? So <laughs> well, That's cool, yeah. I mean, and that's funny. Like, so you were talking about, um, before we started recording, you were talking about the uh, episode where we spoke to uh, Viva Yaboa. Um, you know, she actually spoke about disabling the mm -hmm. National Park Service because if you think about it, like the Buffalo Soldiers were mm -hmm. very involved in the um, um, as the original rangers for the National Park Services. So um, there are ties to people of color, you know, and they we've been just pushed aside and mar marginalized in a lot of ways. But that's a really interesting point too about the lack of media attention um, or representation, rather for um, Asian Americans, um, specifically Chinese Americans. And I think I believe. It's the NRDC, their current executive director is a Chinese American. Mm -hmm. And I believe you worked for the <laughs> NRDC in China at one point in time. Do you yes. want to talk about that experience a little bit? And I'm not fishing for um, negative comments because, <laughs> you know, we all know I love my big greens. So, Collar, it's a little McKeel. I love kale too. Um, so, so, okay. So jumping forward like 10 years, um, I, gradu I, I graduated from UC Berkeley and uh, before graduating, it was like, what do you do, right? That same <coughs> question that everybody asks um, as a almost grad. Uh, what was your degree in? Just to get a... So I was kind of crazy um, and I double majored in environmental science and environmental economics and policy ah. and got a minor in energy resources oh. because I went to UC Berkeley and they have like seven yeah. majors related to the environment. <laughs> so <laughs> it was possible. Um, yeah. But uh, these kids spoiled nowadays, like back in my day, when it was just an environmental day. science major, you know, you might've had environmental policy. 
it's like now you got you can study sustainability and environmental science and, and environmental studies and energy resources and blah 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 blah. So, There's a lot to know. Talk about privilege, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um. <laughs> Um, public school system. Yeah. Um, anyways, so I, I decided to apply to this cool fellowship called Princeton in Asia. Um, they send a, over a hundred, um, recent grads, uh, young adults to, um, m- almost all of the Asian countries, um, for, you know, for one year long fellowships. And, uh, you know, there's a good portion that are teaching English, mm-hmm. um, in, Asia, and then there's another good portion that's working for a local community NGO. Um, and that community NGO could be, you know, a multinational NGO that just has like a local office mm-hmm. in that city or that country. Mm-hmm. And in th- that was the case for me. So I, since I studied environment and I was super gung-ho about that, and I, I had geared myself up for doing environmental policy work. That was mm-hmm. my original dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had so many internships in the, um, not so many, I can't, I can't remember how much, <laughs> so, a few mm-hmm. internships in like uh, environmental NGO policy type of roles. And small, big or small organizations? Uh, like both, we recognize some of the names? Both big and small. So um, especially starting off when I was a younger student and mm-hmm. had less experience. Mm-hmm. It was uh, easier to work for um, or to, to find positions working for local mm-hmm. NGOs. So like I, I would go back to San Diego for, for summers and work for like, I had one summer where I interned for the San Diego Coast Keeper. So okay. it was like okay. back to the marine, yeah. uh, marine NGO environmental stuff. Um, also um, interned for Center for American Progress in okay. Washington, D.C. Okay. So that, w- that brought me to like policy think tank stuff. Um, and then this fellowship brought me to the NRDC's Beijing office. And what's interesting about the NRDC is that all of their offices besides the Beijing office is in America. Um, mm-hmm. And so this was their only um, really staffed outside of America office, at least that I was aware of, I'm pretty sure. And so all of the staff there were Chinese. Um, not all, but um, I think excluding a few. But the vast majority were Chinese nationals, and most of them had had some degree of education outside of the outside of China. And it was just a really neat position to be in. I was working on the China Sustainable Cities mm-hmm. policy team and doing a lot of um, urban sustainable urbanization policy research, looking at what was happening both in America and other cities around the world uh, and trying to see how we could make policy suggestions to apply that to rapidly developing Chinese cities. Very cool. cool. How long were you you there? I was... I was at the fellowship for a year, and mm-hmm. then I had the opportunity to renew it mm-hmm. if I wanted to for a second year, um, and I decided not to. So I um, spent like a month traveling around China after nice. that, just <laughs> having a good time. So you didn't want to? Uh, no, that's why I'm not fishing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, you know, I've had discussions about this with several friends, and um, about you don't have to dig in. I'm not here. Okay, I am here to go after Big Greens, but I'm not doing it here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, actually before I decided to um, 
apply for this type of fellowship with NRDC, I had actually already made up my mind that <clears throat> I didn't really want to work for a big environmental NGO <laughs> right out of college. Um, Is there a reason? Yeah. So after having done several internships with NGOs of all sizes, and then also internships with, you know, research internships. So I, I had a few research positions with like, you know, really amazing, brilliant scientists um, doing like marine biology research or like soil ecology research. Um, and kind of just talking to both academics and also policy people and NGO people about the role of NGOs in policy. And I had this really um, inspirational uh, principal investigator PI of a lab in San Diego that I was volunteering at over the summer. And he was talking about ethics in um, the environmental field as someone who um, he identifies as an environmentalist, but he's a scientist. Mm -hmm. um, so he seeks facts. And sometimes the facts, um, you know, it, it's very contextual. Um, it depends what you're researching and what you're researching, um, he gave an example like a desalinization plant. So mm -hmm. these are plants that take salt water and turn them into – take out the salt in the brine and, and create fresh water. Mm -hmm. They're very expensive technologies, and they can be very polluting because mm -hmm. they create this highly – like very almost toxic – sludgy mm -hmm. substance, yeah. mm -hmm. um, they take it out so that you can have fresh water at the other end. Right. And so where do you put that sludgy stuff? Yeah. It's it, it kills things that you put it on. Um, and so there's a lot of environmental research on what, you know, environmental impacts these things have. And he, he had done some of this research. And um, he said that um, at least, you know, this was also at this point, a few decades ago when he yeah. started doing this research. So, may, you know, I'd like to think things are changing on, mm -hmm. like, environmental NGO responses, but mm -hmm. um, we'll see. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Um, but at least in that situation, he had found that actually in this little outlet of this bay and whatever where the environment was already pretty, you know, pretty biologically Scar there's things living, but it's it's kind of already like a salt plain mm -hmm. um, and kind of a dried up salt plain. And, you know, having a desalinization plant there it wouldn't is like not that bad, especially yeah. if you have to have fresh water. And mm -hmm. there's so many worse ways to get, you know, damn rivers right. and like whatever. And like having a desalinization plant here, he found from his research, it doesn't actually impact the environment that bad. And he published this. He was kind of vocal about it. Um and the big environmental NGOs were totally on his case. And they shot him down and started making even, like, personal attacks um, on him and his staff and his team um, because they're like, how could you say this? Like, you're not an environmentalist. Like, all desalinization plants are bad. And that's the that's the issue with um, that I found kind of annoying with big NGOs is that they have these huge stances mm -hmm. on certain things that are – their goal is to – get funding mm. from the public. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's difficult to explain science very, yeah. very, uh, very well to the public, especially when, for a case of desalinization plant, like some desalinization plants are good and some are bad. So how, how are we going to say some are good and some are bad and explain the details of the right. science to yeah. everybody? Yeah. So the easy way to do it is just say all are bad. Yeah. And so this happens a lot with all types of environmental issues. Yeah. And, um, 
that really turned off this professor. He was telling me these stories, and it kind of gave me at this at that point my young fresh mind I was like no NGOs they're supposed to be like idealist and like you know <laughs> no I guess very little they're not profit driven so they're supposed to be for the interest of like the environment yeah. but in many cases since they're such large organizations they can take stances that are for the best interest of the organization mm-hmm. and yeah. it's sustainability it's sustained function mm-hmm. um, to continue to um, have yes or no um, issues, black and white, make it very simple for like the public to jump on and continue to support. And for some issues, that works really well. And but for a lot of environmental issues, it's it's a lot more complex. Do you think, um, especially the American public, uh, and on a sort of a lack of ongoing science education, is a problem for the environment and understanding? whether or not they are environmentalists or social and policy issues? That's a really good question. So I think that it's, we learn science in school, Mm -hmm. but we don't always learn how it's applied to the world. So we might learn biology. Like biology is, so there's physics, right? The the Mm -hmm. most core science. (laughs) And then there's chemistry, which is applied physics, essentially. And there's there's biology, which is applied chemistry. And then there's ecosystem science, which is like applied biology. So it's like it steps up and it seems like in our K through 12 education, we, unless you're taking AP environmental science, you're not really talking about ecology so maybe a little bit in biology that's mind-blowing though if you think about it you said that physics is the essential right like Mm -hmm. that's the that's the starting point but you know most schools at least in Chicago um, I don't know how much has changed my kids aren't in high school yet and you know it's been a few years since I graduated from high school but you know biology was the required science and then maybe you want and then you took chemistry but if you really were interested in the sciences you know environmental science might be available to you you might be able to take physics you know, but these were electives these were like hey if you get down the down the road like maybe we should be starting with physics then moving on to biology and you know so on and so forth um having that having physics as the baseline as opposed to biology and in biology it's all like hey let's do, go dissect some frogs as opposed to again having con- um using context about why that's important you know yeah so i mean as someone who i <laughs> I can't say I love physics mm-hmm. at all, <laughs> but um, I do. Uh, I tried really hard to understand it because you have to. Yeah. Um, I think it's just naturally since you can't dissect something mm-hmm. to see something. I mean, yeah. you can use uh, biology is just so much more hands on and yeah. fun in those yeah. ways, um, which is why it seems like it's more approachable at a young age. And maybe you know the order is better that way I don't know I haven't given it as much thought but I think that idea of like applied science we don't we learn about it in class but I don't think there's enough like outdoor education and like hands-on education to actually make it make it something that seems real and something that's all around you yeah yeah even Juanita and I you know we've talked about this like our um you know we love the environment, but, you know, from afar, like, hey, like, <laughs> look at that. You know, it looks really nice from outside, you know, like from inside here. I can stare on it out through the window. You know? Yeah, we're, we're, you know, our areas of specialty are in the built environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, not that we don't love ecology and the environment, but it, it 
it comes from a different place. Exactly. Yeah, I've grown to appreciate it, you know, as opposed to like growing up and being like, oh, I got to get out into the woods. And I guess when I think back on it, I mean, like we did spend a lot of time in Whistler Woods, you know, as a kid and, um, for, you know, like the forest preserves and the parks and stuff like that. But it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, open space. I got to get out there. Like, oh, no, it was like, oh, my gosh, here's enough open space for us to play football. Let's go do that. Yeah. You know? It's enough space to, you know, play kickball or softball or something, you know. It wasn't like, hey you know, beaches, you know, tripping over. Them, like, <laughs> like <laughs> little Judy. I mean, Chicago's got a lot of nice beaches, you know. Um, Very yeah. human pruned beaches. They're not natural. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know. Um, West Coast shade over here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how much you got to see um, s- sort of like that, NRDC engagement with the Chinese public. Yeah. Um, did you see that there was a different perspective on on that and how the environment and and the importance of environmentalism was communicated differently to a Chinese public than it would mm-hmm. be to an American public? Yeah, totally. So I kind of jumped over. I'm not trying to avoid the topic, I promise, <laughs> but I'm sh- <laughs> trying to share another story that explains it well. So yeah. the story of, of NRDC and my, um, my understanding of them was... Um, at least for the China program and our interaction with the rest of NRDC that's based in America, mm-hmm. um, it's tricky because you're in a country that you cannot have grassroots movements, yeah. um, especially coming from um, a foreign NGO. Mm-hmm. Like NRDC would get kicked out mm. if yeah. like we tried to inspire the public to do anything. <laughs> you know? so, um, yeah. so the approach is really different than what NRDC does in America and what environmental NGOs in America do. And so the approach um, of NRDC in China was more on a high-level policy consulting angle. Oh, okay. So we had... Uh, NRDC in China has um, really smart policy consultants who either work full-time in China or, like, come from America for special meetings. And a really, I mean, as far as I could tell, a really great working relationship with the Chinese national government. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they, with, like, the last the past two years, kind of those, the coal cap. Um, so China agreed formally to like cap their coal consumption by like a certain date. And then they also, you know, did the U- <laughs> joint U.S.-China uh, climate change stuff, which I don't know what the future of it is. Yeah. But at the time when it was created, like I was in China uh, working for NRDC and it was big news. It was really exciting. And NRDC was definitely in the picture making that happen and so mm-hmm. nrdc can have that effect from a really high level but not like a grassroots um hu- like you know awareness or movement building thing so um what i ultimately got a little frustrated was basically where i decided to that i didn't necessarily want that the work at nrdc was was okay you know it I was entry level, you know, mm-hmm. uh, NGO work, and so that in itself was was cool. But then also, like, I wanted to do more. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do more, and I, I I'm naturally in any job or any place that I'm at, I'm always seeing mm-hmm. like opportunities to mm-hmm. to help and make environmental impact in other ways. And so the issue with being a foreign NGO in China is that you can raise from from my perspective, I can raise these issues. 
as someone who's living and working in China, be like, you know, waste. Waste issues in China are huge. Why、mm. don't we address that、yeah. instead of like spending? Because that's not the NRDC's thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Instead of、yeah. spending time doing these other things, which are already crowded,、yeah. there's already other international、yeah. NGOs working on、Funders、these same energy climate topics. Like, why don't we like focus a little bit on waste? Yeah.、Um, there's huge issues. Funders don't pay、issues. for waste reduction. I mean, like they don't. You know, it's not sexy enough. Yeah, trash. Working with trash is not necessarily a, a、yeah. sexy topic, and like <laughs>、yeah. uh, even if you're talking about like closed loop, yeah, and like buddy, that's starting to get cool. But I mean, like, I'm, I'm sure our buddy Nick Lucas and Ken Dillon would say otherwise. But I feel you. I, I completely agree. You know, yeah. And we've talked even talking about closed loop. You know, you have to change the language that you're using because you know, like one man's trash is another man's treasure, and、mm-hmm. you know. Is is a resource? I mean, looking at、um, you know closed loop examples of closed loop systems in the Chicago area,、um, and as I tr- organically try and steer us away from the NRDC conversation,、yeah. the big green <laughs> conversation, because notice I've been very silent because I don't want you know like people are always saying that I'm you know like blasting away at the big greens and I'm not I'm, I haven't said much、I、haven't said much this episode <laughs> so you know like I don't have a problem with them、um, the plan you know so I've heard. That you're on the auxiliary board at the plant Chicago. Yeah, so I am on the auxiliary board at Plant Chicago.、Um, I I do want to add before we steer away from NRDC. Oh, please go. I, I didn't I didn't hit I didn't hit it hard enough, but、um, essentially things things came up where. W- I thought that there were some issues that we should focus on,、yeah. and they, based on funding,、mm-hmm. as you kind of like side added in there, based on you know what the funders in America wanted, because they can't、oh. even take they can't even take Chinese funding as、oh. like a international non Chinese organization. NGOs cannot take Chinese funding,、um, yeah. and so、uh, they they're they're kind of beholden to what the environmental issues are important from the eyes of like. <laughs> The international、Outsiders. US <laughs> community. Oh wow! Because all their foundation grants are from there, and that's not because they they don't want Chinese money. They they want Chinese money. Like that would be、um, awesome. They want any but... money that they, they can get. I mean, <laughs> you know? But they just can't. It's like out of, not allowed in、and、China. And I'm not saying that about the NRDC specifically. I'm saying any nonprofit organization that needs to raise funds is looking for funding sources. Funding streams, yeah, you know. So I'm not saying that like they're blood suckers or anything like that. It's just the the way in- nonprofits are set up. Yeah, the, the nonprofit industrial complex I've heard people ref- refer- reference and refer to before. I'm I'm subscribed to so many nonprofits email listservs. Oh my god, they like flood my inbox.、Yeah. I love to keep track of what they're doing because it、yeah. is important for NGOs to be to be at capacity, to be、right. big enough to have resources, to have marketing, and to、yeah. to create like. Social media presence、mm-hmm. and make policy changes. You have to be a certain capacity th- to do that. Yeah, I get so、I'm、many most... emails from Michael Bruni. I feel like he and I are best friends. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he addresses you personally on、exactly、each、right. email. Like, Brian, Ted, did you know? Whole <laughs> <laughs>、oh, thing. Yeah, I, I think there's this misconception that、um, that NGOs, that nonprofits,、um, that all of their money should go towards the mission, and I, I think that's. Really unfair for a their businesses, their operations、exactly. that you know should have business operations costs,、yeah. um, and and pay pay their employees a、yeah. living wage and、yeah. um, 
I, I think there's the and... that misconception. I mean, there there the are definitely is. organizations that, um, you know, and some have had some problems with that. But I think the those indexes of how much money goes towards the mission of an NGO are, are misleading, and right. mm-hmm. it's right. not fair to to expect uh, these nonprofits to dedicate all their money to the to that. Um, Right, because I mean, even with the marketing, I mean, like you know, I, I had yeah. a friend. Um, I have a had I have a friend, Donovan Irvin, who um used to work in uh, development for um, Teach for America, mm-hmm. and yeah, I remember talking to him about development, and he was explaining to me is like you know you can't just spend all of your time, you know, doing you know fighting the battles, yeah. you know, so that you can you know, receive additional funding, you have to talk about the mm-hmm. accomplishments. You have to track them. Yeah. You need to highlight them. And then you need to spout off about them. Like, hey, funder, did you know we, we signed 100,000 people on, on this, you know, got 100,000 signatures on this petition last year. We had, you know, 50,000 new members and we had, you know, um, we pushed this policy, we pushed that policy. This is the type of work that we're doing with your funding. So mm-hmm. if we received... $1 million of funding from you, guess what we could do with $2 million yeah. of funding or whatever. I know these are all, you know, like hypothetical numbers. <laughs> I'm sure these are, com- yeah, you know, variations are. of these conversations. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And, you yeah. know, they have huge lobbying teams yes. too. Like you got to pay those lobbyists to be good yes. and like yeah. to, they, they have fierce competition. <laughs> exactly. Like think about the oil and gas yeah. lobby and yeah. the coal lobby. Yeah. And paying a bank to their lobbyists, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that is, that is serious lo- like advocacy work, mm-hmm. uh, highly highly uh specific specific policy work in the government but um that is really important work that like smaller ngos don't have the capacity to do right and so we need those bigger ngos to do that so you know there's there's always pluses and minuses to like different players in the environmental scene because just the structure of whatever organization you create and your the impact you want to have there's going to be people yeah. who get disappointed on some ends and people who love the other ends. Right. Yeah. I guess uh, kind of transitioning uh, away from <laughs> going on and on about the RNDC, I'd like to hear what brought you to Chicago. Yeah. So my boyfriend um, of many years, um, he started medical school here. Oh, very cool. So that was ultimately the reason why I came to Chicago. Though I might, might I say, um, I did influence the decision. He's a Loyola he, man, correct? He is at Loyola. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and doing very well. He's a very smart cookie. So he's super smart. He got like not that you're biased. Or not that I'm biased. <laughs> I'm I'm only his biggest cheerleader. But um, he. He got into like three medical schools, and uh, I was like, Chicago it sounds like a good place. It's out of the three, like, you know, big metropolitan region. There must be a lot going on, must mm-hmm. be a lot of cool people. Though I heard about that winter thing, but like, I'm just gonna it's buy warm I clothes. Mean, like, you know, Chicagoans are complaining about just, complain. just layer, just- yeah, exactly. <laughs> layer up, you know, it's been, it's been great, it's yeah. been really good. So, um, so I, I had. Never been to Chicago, not even visited um, really? before I decided that I was going to move here. And it's it's been good to me so far. I, I met a lot of really great people in the environmental scene from mm. the whole spectrum, from like energy people yeah. who are a totally different type of people than like the um, kind of urban ag, sustainable, like kind of mm-hmm. you're more crunchy 
environmentalist. Crunchy granola environmentalist. Which, <laughs> which I, I really identify with. I, I miss those types of environmentalists being yeah. in like China, Beijing, and um, yeah, you're kind of a really here. good mix of the two, actually. You know, <laughs> like the, the intersectionality of the you know, of the environmental movement. So, you, know, you mentioned urban agriculture, so I think that's how you and I met. Like yes. we were at a we met at a farmers market. At um, the plant. Yeah, I yeah. love the plant. So Yay. for anybody who has not heard of the plant, um, <laughs> it is... <laughs> the shameless plug of the episode, and I didn't even do it this oh, time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm on the auxiliary board. Located at 1400 West 46th Street. Uh, what's it? The plantchicago.org. You, know, you can yeah. find it online. Yeah. Find it online. The website's beautiful. Um, <laughs> it is. Brian is a board member. I'm just, ex- just going to throw that out. <laughs> Like we're trying to keep my business out of here. Like, you know, speaking of my business. <laughs> no, no. Plant Chicago. So, um, <laughs> so Plant Chicago is a really – so a nonprofit runs the space, and it's kind of it, – it's it's – what I like to describe it as is it's kind of like an urban ag food sustainability closed loop like incubator yes. space. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's in an old meat packing facilities, mm-hmm. giant concrete building, um, and they just house uh, small startups or small businesses that mm-hmm. are related to food production or mm-hmm. um, you know food preparation. And so there's like a uh, there's Weiner Beer. A, a, beer brewing a company there yeah. there's pleasant house which is a pretty famous um yeah. like bakery which started there i mean you know you talk about the business incubation mm-hmm. wine and beer started in the plant mm-hmm. and now that you know now they're uh canning well i was going to say bottling but they're canning their beer and selling it throughout um you know and Benny's and uh, other uh uh uh, liquor stores throughout the city. Um, Pleasant House started in the plant, and then you know they have two locations, I believe. I think it's just one. Oh, you're right. They, they consolidated to, to the one, one, the one large location, which is beautiful. You know, our um, our our mutual friends, the Urban Canopy, mm-hmm. they were one of the very first tenants in the Chicago area, and now they're one of the most successful urban ag groups, one of the, um, the premier urban ag groups in the Chicago area. Yeah, I think the only. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out the space, but I've done a lot of research, and they're like the only for-profit um, environmental, or I guess, urban agriculture, yes. farming, urban farming organization yeah. that I found. You're right. Uh, You're exactly right. I think they're the one of the only that I've that I'm aware of, and I point them out when I'm talking to people about urban agriculture all the time. You know, they or urban gardening or however you want to slice it. They, you know, like most people, their urban agriculture. Uh, or business is sustained through grants and um, uh, philanthropic support. These young men have figured out a way. They have a business system and they have a growing system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where they can grow enough on like basically two acres of land um, per neighborhood to power that particular far, um, farm plot. You know, they... It's an interesting model, and it's for profit as opposed to like, hey, please give us money to make this, you know, sustainable. Well, and, and I love the closed loop um, uh, system, and and the fact that you know you have several businesses that are cooperating in that to reduce waste and think circular economy in in more than just one business and this group of businesses to sustain themselves. I love that. Yeah. There's a really cool project that um, I just love that they're still working on, but they're trying to make bio bricks for 
um, for the bakery to use. And so the core of this, the core of this building, you know, there's so many different little projects and businesses mm-hmm. there. There, there was a mushroom um, farm <laughs> there that they're looking for a new tenant to mm-hmm. continue mushroom farming. There's aquaponics system in there. There's other like microgreen growing, indoor growing, yeah. composting. Shout out to my the, to uh, Nick's Nick's greens you know, or <laughs> Nick greens. You know, <laughs> um, to micro uh, micro greens. It, actually, and Nick is a great story actually about the plant because he started as a um, he started as a volunteer. And eventually started up his own business in the plant and um, went on, you know, like to start up his own microgreens business that actually, I think it was bought out by a family farmed or farmed here or um, oh, a I'm fairly sure. large organization. The, that was like the successful. basil people? I think so. Farmed here is yeah. the basil people. Yeah. So I think, you know, his, his group was recently bought out and it was, you know, it's really, I mean, it's been pretty successful and expanded over time. So, you know, I think he's been doing very well. Um, you know, for himself within the organization there. So I'm sorry I cut you off. Yeah. So. No, thanks for that. Because I'm still trying to, I'm, I'm a new volunteer there. I've <laughs> joined the auxiliary board for several, just several months. Um, just started giving tours. So how did you wind up hearing about the um, plant in Chicago? Like what brought you to it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, I had been interested in social entrepreneurship for a while. That's why earlier when I said I decided I didn't want to work for an NGO and all these reasons, we got kind of into that discussion. But the ultimate reason was because they're not sustainable in themselves. Mm-hmm. Like they don't make a product and they don't have an income, a profit mm-hmm. to sustain themselves. So solely when they're solely focused on their grants, that's how you get these types of like right. things that we were complaining about. So um, I was really curious to to learn more about the social entrepreneurship, um, social environment, yeah, the social impact in social entrepreneurship scene. Mm -hmm. And I found that in the environmental issues Mm -hmm. space, um, urban agriculture was a really promising area for uh, social entrepreneurship. Um, Because I looked at energy, you have a lot of things going on. Um, Composting, there's some great efforts in Chicago Mm -hmm. with like grassroots kind of startup um, composting, you know, biking and composting and all of that. Was it Farmer John and the um, uh, Healthy Soil Compost Mm -hmm. Project where he bikes around picking up compost from residential, um, from uh, single family residences? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's that. And then Urban Canopy has their own <laughs> composting yeah, uh, revenue little, stream. Nature's which, Little Recyclers is out there yeah. um, in the south side as well. And I think um, there's a there's a cool um, guy named Liam uh, who's based out of Ravenswood who does a similar biking, oh, cool. um, mm-hmm. picking up compost startup. And so there's a lot of cool and like you know, business model innovation happening in for social entrepreneurship related to the right. environment. And then in the urban agriculture space too, that's why I was particularly drawn to urban canopy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met one of them at some farmer's market. And then they told me like, Oh, you're interested in like aquaponics. Cause aquaponics is another way that you can grow food indoors with fish and um, no soil. And it's like great for urban environments because mm-hmm. it's, um, you use the waste from the fish and them eating, pooping nutrients turns into nutrients that plants can take up through their roots that are dangling in the water. And then you can eat the plants and they're totally natural and mm-hmm. pesticide 
fertilizer free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you got this great all natural um, produce and then it's, you know, you're eliminating a lot of the pollution and the energy inputs of the traditional agricultural system. And so yeah. I thought this was amazing. And I heard yeah. about it, did some research on it. And I talked, I, I started talking to all these people in Chicago about it who were in urban ag. And they're like, you got to check out the plant yeah. because they've got a cool demonstration like system. And they're just a cool closed loop system of like, you know, a community of, of companies. <laughs> um, and then that's where I met Bryant at the plant Chicago's <laughs> farmer's market. Yeah. I go to a lot of farmers markets. Uh, I like farmers markets. Yeah, I, I do too. So uh, you know, we're also all three of us are members of uh, Environmentalists of Color EOC. Mm-hmm. How did um, how did you come to be aware of EOC and, and join? I through Bryant, <laughs> um, actually. So well, I mean, like not through Bryant, but through the head recruiter. The director of communications and, rec- and uh, recruitment for oh, who, um, the environmental color. Yeah, I, that's who I how heard I was his, his name was well. Bryant. Oh. Um, yeah. That's how I was brought in. <laughs> 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 <You> know, <laughs> yeah, so. Um, he's a very charismatic guy. I mean, like, he's brought a lot of people to the organization. What can I say? I mean, you know. So, actually, okay. I mean, if we go back to the first time Juanita and I met, which mm-hmm. was at a environmentalist of colors uh, meeting at the NRDC's Chicago office. That was because Mm -hmm. I was, you know, reaching through my own contacts and trying to find a job in Chicago. Mm -hmm. All my contacts were in like through NRDC, Mm -hmm. kind of this like environmental NGO Mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. And so they said, Hey, we're actually hosting (laughs) this like event at our space. It could be cool for you to meet people. So that's how I ended up at first hearing about EOC. Um, and then it kind of dropped off the map for me <laughs> um, because I was looking for a job. And then... I have all sorts of feelings about this. I'm going to move my wife away. So. <laughs> 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 like, oh, hey, we're just actually hosting. Like, I'm done. Now go ahead. <laughs> well, for their credit, um, my... my Existing network with like NRDC did help me meet a lot of cool people and get a better understanding of the environmental field in Chicago. As someone starting off, that was really, really helpful. And I could use any networking event, no matter where yeah. it was hosted, yeah. to meet more people. Um, and so that was super beneficial. I met some really cool people, got really inspired about the environmental scene in Chicago through that first meetup and then EOC kind of dropped off the radar for me as I was like still continuing to look for a job I moved back to California for like a few months to continue looking for a job remotely um and then came here and then finally like heard about it again when I like uh. met Bryant again and actually got invited to like a meeting so we've talked about a, a lot about your personal interests are you you know I think you um came to the plant because you're interested in learning more about aquaponics and trying to become a social entrepreneur yourself or just mm-hmm. trying to learn about on- social entrepreneurship? A little bit of both. So I I have found that whenever I've been, you know, at a job or, you know, in some sort of leadership position, I've always had these, like, new ideas. <clears throat> I've always mm-hmm. wanted to, like, start something, and it, it's really satisfying, and it's an exciting process mm-hmm. to, like, start a new initiative or start a new group or organization. And so knowing that about myself and that there's so much that can be done in the environmental space Mm -hmm. and knowing that I wanted to try out the social entrepreneurship scene, I do want to like start my own social 
Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And so I had... Have you thought of a name already for it? Or? No, the name... I, like, bounce between some, and it's it's one of those things where, like, if something sticks, it'll stick. Okay. Yeah. So right now I'm not focusing too much on it. It'll come organically. Yeah, do you ever desire to get back into environmental policy at all? Oh, totally. So I see environmental policy as my... My ultimate goal really? is to be like a very top level environmental policy advisor for an NGO to the president. Yeah. So all future presidents <laughs> hear me right now. It's like, well, I mean, <laughs> That's awesome. if we, I mean, I don't know. If, Given the the rate that our current president is future going, president, I'm just saying like, we may not have any types of well, environmental exactly. Aspects. He could use one, definitely. He yeah. could use a sensible one. That's true. Um, so, yeah, uh, I would have to think about that one. But um, so I think that's that's my ultimate goal at some yeah. point is to like be in that level of policy power. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, like you, with your ties to the Bay Area, Van Jones. Was you know the quote unquote green, green czar for uh, President Obama? He I mean, he was essentially like the first green cabinet member when he first you know when uh, Obama was first elected. Um, so you know like you kind of have those ties to the Bay Area. You both you know like he's born and raised in the Bay Area. You're educated in the Bay Area. You know so yeah, it, it, it kind of makes some sense to be like again close, closing loops, right? That yeah. that's flattering <laughs> that you would compare me to Van Jones like that. <laughs> I mean, like, listen, you know, you have that tie. I mean, like, you both, you know, environmentalists, connections.